Amen. And thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Lord, for having us in your presence. And Lord, we surrender all, as we just sang. We surrender all our desires, our ambitions, our opinions, our thoughts, our everything to you. Lord, as we come to your word, we surrender our memories to you as well. Lord, we invite you now to just come and just cause a new wave of washing of our memory banks. Cause your spirit to come right now, Lord. When your word says that we are to have our minds renewed, we ask, Lord, that you also renew our memories, our memories of shame, our memories of guilt, our memories of fear, our memories of bondage, our memories of sin. We ask, Lord, that you renew our memories. Lord, we surrender all. We ask now that you cleanse us as we come to your word, through your word. Cleanse us from all that is not of you. All that is darkness, all that is evil, all that is sin, all that is failure, all that is disappointment. Cleanse us, Lord, and put us on your path to allow us to move from glory to glory. We pray and ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I uh, just want to encourage you, and uh, I'd like you to do something that we haven't done in a very long time. I'd like you to turn around and greet the person that's behind you. Yeah, I know we're on Zoom. There's nobody behind you. But I'd like you to do it this way. All right? Pay attention. On the Zoom app. Yeah, I saw that, JGAP. You're trying to get a kiss in there. Not now. <laughs> what I'd like you to do is on the Zoom app, if you're on a mobile device, go to the chat and find someone you haven't spoken to for a long time now because of COVID and text them a little hello. If you're on your computer, it's a lot easier. You can just click the chat button at the bottom of your screen and you can click someone and say hello to them. And I just want to be able to sort of do something a little different than what we have done on Zoom all this time. So take a moment and just say a quick hello to someone. And uh, uh, you can only message hosts and nobody else. Well, let's see. Uh, nah, that's not true, is it? Allow participants to, okay, let's try this. Uh, is that the case? You can only message the host, okay. Uh, this is weird. All right, so let's see here. Uh, All right. Well, this is what a good, this was a good idea. We should have checked this out before we introduced it, but I think that, uh, how is that? Try it now. I think we got it, right? Everybody can text everybody else. Susanna, thank you for that. Okay. Thumbs up. Josh, Forrest, say hello to somebody. Take a minute and let's say hello to one another. And uh, you can also do it in the general chat. You can do it in the private chat. Uh, just take a moment and express your love for one another.
All right. Almost there. I'm not going to say old friends, but uh, I'm going to say friends that uh, we've known for some time now. And uh, it's good to say hello to one another. Hi, Azadeh. All right. When you're done, uh, just clap and uh, I'll see you're clapping and I know you're done. And then uh, we're going to continue on. Okay, clapping. I see some claps. RS clapping as well. All right. Hi, Heidi's iPad. Hi, Garine. Okay, I think we're about ready. So uh, I feel like I have to pray again now, just before we get started, uh, but I won't do that. Okay. Over the last number of weeks that I've been preaching, I've been sharing with you a truth about what we are called to. And uh, if you recall, I've been talking to you about going from glory to glory. And the key verse that I was focusing on is from 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, where Paul writes that now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. There's so much packed into those two verses, so much truth, so much hope, so much potential. In these two verses, we read that God is Spirit. We call Him the Holy Spirit. We call Him the breath of God. We call Him the Comforter. We call Him the Teacher. We call Him uh, the Spirit of God. He is God himself. He's not a different spirit. He's not a junior God. He is not the power of God. He is God himself, the person of God in the form and in the person of the spirit. He is the one that hovered on the earth in the deep. He's the one that before creation was there. If you remember last time we looked at that and we are being, as we look at him, we look as though in a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you don't expect to see a different face. You expect to see your own face. But he says that we would unveil faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of God. When we look at the mirror, we expect to see our own face. But we are told in this verse that when we look as though as though we look through the mirror, we see the glory of God himself. We see the fullness of the expression of God. We see the beauty of God. We see the nature, the character, the, the fullness of God. But yet we are being transformed. We're not there yet. When I look at the mirror, I see myself. I don't see the glory of God fully. I see his glory in that he's created me as beautiful as I am. Because I look like my brother. We see the glory of God in the beauty of each other's faces. But a lot of us have this image issue with our own beauty, with our own glory. But that's not the point here today. The point is that we are being transformed, changed. Like a butterfly becomes the butterfly from the... Caterpillar, we are being metamorphosized. 
there's a transformational process that is going on with us. And it's moving us from glory to glory, from one level of glory to a deeper level of glory. And he is doing this on a constant basis. And we know that he's doing this because we've experienced tastes of it. But there's a reality. When we come to an experience with God, most of us have had this experience that we have an encounter with God. We walk away from that encounter feeling a certain level of high or a certain level of glory. And then it fades. Either we forget about what happened in that moment or the cares of life come and choke it or we get distracted by different things, or we fall into another trap of sin, and we don't remember what that encounter was like. There's moments in worship that we experience the presence of God, and it's a high moment for us, but then it leaks, it fades. And I shared this with you, and I shared that our experiences, as powerful and as marking as they are in our lives, they tend to be forgotten or leaked, out of our minds and out of our hearts. And I call that leakage. And I mentioned to you that God, knowing this nature of ours, has created processes and he has given a process to Israel. And he has also given a process that we read about in the church. And we've discovered that there is a process that as we go through this process, he helps us to overcome the leakage as we accept the process in our lives, as we apply ourselves, discipline ourselves, and notice the word discipline is very much related because it has the same root as the word disciple. As we undertake, as we put ourselves in a process of discipleship, in other words, another word for discipleship is teaching or mentoring or being taught or being trained. And the Holy Spirit does that. He takes us through this process of discipleship so that we are through the process of discipleship transformed and we can move from glory to glory. This is a process we have to say yes to constantly. We always need to be in a posture of saying yes to the teacher. The teacher, the Holy Spirit, is a good God. He is not harsh. He is not harmful. He will never take us beyond our capacity. He has created us, made us in the image of God, and knows how to move us higher and higher and looking more like the Lord. The key to this, I told you, was the will. And I mentioned that the example that we have in Scripture, at the very beginning of the process of the church being brought into existence and being established, the kingdom of heaven being expressed on earth beyond the nation of Israel, in the book of Acts, we read these words. In Acts chapter 2, right after Peter finished preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost, we read these words. Every day, they continued. In other words, it became a habit. It became a process that they willingly submitted themselves to. It became their discipline. It became their life. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes. They didn't take loaves of bread and just break them. In other words, they ate together in their homes. They shared a meal together in their homes. Unfortunately, in the last year and a half, we have not been able to do that. We haven't been able to do it in our homes. We haven't been able to do it in the building. But the principle behind it, the principle of coming together around the table of the Lord and breaking bread together is what he's talking about here. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. 
they were glad and sincere hearts. A lot of times we go through life and the circumstances of our life cause our hearts not to be glad. Our hearts become heavy. Our hearts become burdened. Our hearts become troubled. These guys in this passage were people living in Israel. Most of them at this point, if not all, were Jewish. They were Israelites. They had just come to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. They were not the most popular people in Israel, and in this case in Jerusalem. They were being hunted by the leaders of the synagogue and the temple because they were viewed as being heretics. They had nothing to be glad about in their everyday life. But they came together with glad and sincere hearts. The word sincere is very interesting. Sincere means transparent. They were open to one another. They were open with one another. They didn't keep things from one another. Later on in the book of Acts, we read about a judgment that came on a couple that kept secrets in their hearts against the other disciples when they gave their offering. And as we look at all of this, they came with glad hearts in the midst of hardship. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders that were coming for them. Later on, we read how Paul came for them when he was still Saul. But also the Romans weren't too happy with them. Sometimes we feel that there's pressure from society, from the authorities. Sometimes we Christians feel that, you know, there's such a pressure around us that we have to guard ourselves. They had nothing to guard themselves with. They were a minority within an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. Not a great position to be in. But they knew what they had. And they had glad hearts because of what they have inherited in their salvation. They came together. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. That now contradicts everything I've just finished telling you. But they had favor not with the authorities, not with the Romans, not with the temple guard. They had favor with the everyday people. They had favor with their neighbors that weren't yet believers. They had favor with friends in their community and in their circle. They had favor with family members that weren't yet believers. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now that sentence at the end, that phrase at the end, those who were being saved. We have a habit as Christians of asking one another, when did you become saved? When were you saved? I was saved on August 8th, 1976. But that's when I started being saved. It was on that day that somebody asked me, do you want to have Jesus as the Lord of your life? And I said, yes. And I prayed the sinner's prayer. That was the day, by the way, for those of you that want to know, it's also a very significant day for somebody else sitting around in this room with us. It's Rob's birthday. So remember that and say hi to him. I was saved on Rob's birthday, oddly enough. So how is that for destiny? Hey, Rob. Not too far from here. Your birthday will celebrate. So as, as we come to this place, we are being saved. The scripture is clear. Salvation isn't that moment where you become a new believer. Salvation is a process that we look back at an event, that high point, and now we can't let that leak. We have to put a process in place. And I have been working on that process of my salvation since August 8, 1976. Another passage, just a few verses down from that, it says that they devoted themselves 
You know what devotion is? Devotion is a commitment that is unwavering. Devotion is a dedication that is unshaken. Devotion means they have determined and they're going for it. I ask you, are you devoted to the things that need to make you be saved? Are you devoted to the transformation that moves you from glory to glory to glory? Are you devoted to your Savior as your Lord? Or is Christianity just a tack add-on to your life? It's something that you are comfortable to do on Sunday, but not throughout the week. These guys were devoted. These people that were our spiritual forefathers in the beginning of the foundation of the church, when the plan of God moved from dealing with one nation, Israel, as his prince, to all the nations as the inheritors of salvation, those who are being saved. You and I have inherited that and have come into that by virtue of saying yes to the finished work of Christ on the cross. We come into it, and now we need to step into that place of devotion, to devote ourselves. I'm going to challenge you with a few things today. What are some of the things that they devoted themselves to? I told you, the apostles' teaching here, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. In the previous verse, just a second ago, we also saw that they devoted themselves to praising God, worship. We do that whenever we get together on Sunday. We worship together. But I hope, I pray, it is not the only time in your week that you praise God. You know, worship leaders talk about worship as a lifestyle. Not worship as music. Worship isn't that 20, 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday when we come together and somebody stands in front of us and leads us in worship. That's one expression of worship. That's the corporate expression of worship. When we come together, yes, we're not together physically, but we come together in a moment, and we lift up our voices within our separate homes. When we come together physically, it's like we're bringing our fires, our hot coals together in one room, and we let a big fire burn. COVID hasn't allowed us to do that. It doesn't stop us from being in our homes and bringing our coal, our hot coal, and letting it burn within our homes so that in the city, there are many fires going up all over the city that are not coming together in one physical place, but are scattered to let the fire burn in many locations. What an honor to take part in that corporate worship. In many other countries, not because of COVID, but because of the circumstances on the, on the church in that country, they don't have the privilege of coming together to worship. When I was in Armenia, we happened to go visit a forest. And we drove into this whole uphill drive and we ended up up on the top of a hill and it was wooded and there were many trees. And we ended up getting off-road and driving into the grass to come near a patch of trees. And then they told us that during the communist days, they couldn't worship in a place. There was no church building that they can attend. They had to hide themselves. And somehow or other, they would gather together in that forest, as many as could come, and they would spend some time in worshiping God in that forest. Others that couldn't make it, others that didn't have cars, would never come to the forest. But they were worshiping God. They knew the power of worship. They knew the power of praise. One of the songs that we sing is, This is how I fight my battles. Do you remember it? This is how I fight my battles. How? With worship and with praise. These people in the beginning of the church at, uh, in the book of Acts knew that they had devoted themselves and they knew that they had to sing songs of praise 
they knew how to lift up their voices together, alone, apart, together. And they knew what it means to recognize the worth of God in worship, that it would shift things in that moment where their spirit was now through the process, not allowing the leakage to happen. So to look at it in a different perspective, the process that the Lord has given to us in the New Testament through the example of the first believers is this process here. Devotion to the teachings, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and praising God. A few weeks ago, Rob took the first point of breaking of bread. And he beautifully went through and gave us a time where we would, before we came to communion, spend moments in quiet where we would contemplate and recognize what God has done in us through his son, Jesus, that allows us to come to the table of communion and be prepared to receive the bread together. He beautifully explained how each of us on an individual basis come into that place of communion and we commune with God one-on-one. There isn't any ranks there. There isn't grandchildren of God. There's all of us come to the presence of God as his children and we receive the bread, we receive the cup, and we enter together. Individually, we enter together and we corporately celebrate the table. Last week, Rob again highlighted a couple of points about prayer and he explained to us that there is prayer and there is supplication. Let your prayers and requests be made known to God. And two weeks ago, I spent some time in talking to you about the devotion to the teaching. And I gave you a breakdown and I went through at length the seven days of creation. And what are these points? And, and, uh, and as I was looking at them, we talked about the road to Emmaus. And what happened on that road? And on that road to Emmaus, when we were talking about it, there were two disciples that were walking along on Sunday after the death and resurrection of Jesus had happened. And I'm not sure exactly if it was Sunday or the day after, but anyway, it was right after resurrection. And the funny thing is that the scripture says that their eyes were closed. Now, on that same day, I think it was Sunday then, on that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That's approximately a three and a half, three to four hour walk. So on the way to Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things among themselves, with each other, Jesus came up to them. But listen, look at this. Jesus came to them, came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Do you know people that don't recognize Jesus yet? I think we all can say yes to that. I hope you know some people that don't know Jesus yet. I hope that all your friends are not just people in the church. But here it says very clearly, including in the Greek, that their eyes were closed. God had allowed their eyes to be closed from recognizing Jesus. And then he asked them, and he started to talk with them. He asked them, what things are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know things that happened here in these last days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet. Now, this is interesting. Many of us come from backgrounds that teach us that Jesus is a prophet. So this speaks to you. You may come from a faith background where you are taught that Jesus is a prophet. 
the chief priest, and, and uh, he did powerful things in word and deed before God and all the people. And that's also taught to you in your old faith. Or maybe it's still your faith. I don't know. But there's something going on here. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe that all the prophets had spoken, all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses. And last time I spoke with you, I shared with you details of what he could have opened up with them from Moses, meaning the first book of Moses in the Torah, Genesis, and in chapter 1 and 2. And I shared with you how God had created things. But in the time that I have left today, I'm going to take us a little bit deeper into the story that I'm confident that he shared with them in that moment where he opened up Moses to them. Some of us may feel that opening up Moses would mean opening up the law. But these people were Jewish. They were Israelites. They had come to their bar mitzvah at the age of 13. They had been taught by their rabbis the teachings of what Moses and the law were about. So he must have opened something else for them that the rabbis had not taught them. That's my estimation. It's neither here nor there, but I really believe that this is foundational to what caused their eyes to be opened. If it was just the law he was teaching them, they were already good students of the law. Paul says that he was taught as a Pharisee, and he was taught by one of the best teachers of the law, but his eyes were also closed. As a matter of fact, when he encountered Jesus on another road, not to Emmaus, but to Damascus, the brightness of the light of Christ blinded him. He asked, they asked him to stay with him and uh, stay with them. And as he stayed with them, he opened up a bunch of things to them. And they looked at it and they saw what was going on. I think one of the things that he did in opening up Moses to them was to take them back to Genesis chapter 2 and to remind them of the story of human creation. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This might be small for you to see on the screen, but I'll read it. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But Adam, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. These are all about Jesus. He opened these things up for them to understand Moses. He caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place of the flesh with flesh. And then the Lord made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and brought it to her, brought her to the man. 
as he did this. Now, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She is to be called woman. Now, I'm not going to say the joke that everybody laughs at, jokes at this time when Adam said, whoa, man. No, that's, that's, that's not what happened. But he called her woman. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. He opened these things up for them to remind them, to help them understand the story of his crucifixion and of his burial and of his resurrection and of the birth of the church that becomes his bride, that they are a part of. As he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. As he took the bread that was the symbol of his Passover in the Last Supper, which became our communion, when he broke that bread, their eyes were opened, the scripture said, and they understood what he was showing them from Moses. He was helping them see the context of his death and resurrection in that story. Now, in chapter 3, we read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. The serpent, he, said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you must not touch it or you will die. Very dangerous words here. Should be a scary word to all of us who preach. You know why? Because she added something to the word of God. God never said anything about touching it. He only said, don't eat of it. So this is a warning to all preachers, all pastors, all teachers, all small group leaders, all people that witness Christ to others. Never add anything to the word of God. Hear it, understand it, meditate on it, digest it, repeat it. Eve, I don't know if she got this from herself, or Adam taught her this way afterwards. I don't know. It doesn't really tell us. You must not eat of the fruit of the tree. You must not touch it or you will die. Satan replies, certainly you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it or from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm not going to take the time to go through the rest of the scripture. I'm going to jump to one of the other verses near the end of this passage. But here you see the dialogue that took place between Satan and the woman. And how God steps into that afterwards. She saw that the fruit was good for eating and for gaining wisdom and desirable. And she took of it and ate of it. And she even gave it to her husband. Their eyes were both open. There's something going on here today with eyes being closed and eyes being open. I pray that the eyes of your spirit are open today to what you need to be devoted to so that you can go from glory to glory with the Lord and that your nature, your character, and your image is transformed into his likeness. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They were naked before, but they now realize it. Sin allows us. Sin allows us. Sin is a manifestation of our nakedness and brings about shame. So they made themselves coverings with fig leaves. They made themselves coverings with fig leaves. Fig leaves are plants that you pick off of the plant and you have a leaf. There's no bloodshed. There's no animal that's been killed for it. It's just taken off the, the branch and there you have it. God comes along and, and says to Adam these words. He comes in and he calls out Adam. He says, where are you? And Adam replies, I am here. 
I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Our nakedness as a result of our sin makes us, drives us to hide from God. That's the worst place we can be when we're naked and ashamed. When we're naked and ashamed, our best place is in the presence of God. He's a merciful God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. He turns to Adam. God knows what happened. He doesn't need to be told the answers. But he asks Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? He knows the answer. He's an all-knowing God. But there is something in the power of our words confessing our sins. There is something transformational. There's a moment of encounter in the presence of God when we confess to him our sin. And something miraculous happens. Man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Yeah, we've all heard the story. Blaming others doesn't work. Adam passed the buck. He didn't take his own responsibility for eating himself. He passed it on to Eve. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it this, what you've done? The woman said, same pattern. She was taken out of Adam's side. She had the same nature. She turns to God and says, it was a serpent. The devil made me do it. When we sin, when we come to confess it before the Lord, own it for yourselves. Own it for ourselves. Don't pass it on to somebody else. It is not your parents' fault. It is not your dad's fault. It's not your mother's fault. It's not your brother's fault. It's not your neighbor's fault. It's my fault and your fault. When we sin, it is our own choice. We have been given free will to choose. We have the responsibility before God to come confess personally. There are some things that we inherit about the sins that come to us from generations. We can stand in the presence of God on behalf of our generations and ask for forgiveness so that the impact of that sin is not transferred. But this is not what's happening here. This is not what happens in repentance. In repentance, when we are confronted with our own guilt, we ask personally for forgiveness. And God speaks to the serpent and then he comes back to the woman. And I'm going to jump here to the end of the chapter here. And in that section, after God pronounces a curse on the ground, a curse on the serpent, when you go back and spend some time in reading this chapter on your own, I hope you will read it. I want you to recognize that God never cursed Adam or Eve. He specifically cursed the earth and how it will produce the fruit. He specifically cursed the serpent. But in speaking to Eve and in speaking to Adam, he only told them about the consequence of their behavior that was already set into place before they took of the fruit. He never cursed them. He never spoke a word of curse over them. He told them the consequence of having fallen would be these things. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I, about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it in all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from, since from it you were taken to dust. From, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. You and I have the same mother. 
Did you know that? And her name is not Teta. Her name is Eve. You and I share the same mother way, way back. All of us. We carry the same inheritance. We carry the same DNA. But they were naked. They were ashamed. God came and spoke to them. But he deals something now and he does something different. He doesn't cover them or leave them covered with the fig leaf. God, the Lord God, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. These things are part of what Jesus would have explained to those men on the road to Emmaus. Because he was opening up Moses. Why was he opening up Moses? He was opening up Moses and all the prophets about what they spoke about him. So what did they speak about him in this? In the next chapter, chapter 4, if you continue reading in Genesis, you will read the story of Cain and Abel and how the sacrifice of one was acceptable, but the sacrifice of the other was not acceptable. Cain brought from the fruit of his land, was Abel killed an animal and brought that as a sacrifice. This is explained right here. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam. How did he make garments of skin? An animal must have been killed. Now, this is not a theological statement. This is not something that you can debate with me in terms of is it biblical or not. It's just a gut feeling that I have. That God had this garment sitting around and waiting for this day. So that when Adam and Eve fell, the garment was ready to clothe them. You know where I get that from? From the scripture that tells us, before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. Jesus opened all these things up to them. He helped them understand that the sacrifice of God, sending his son as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, that John the Baptist spoke about when he baptized Jesus, that lamb, his covering, was already there for Adam and Eve to receive. You're in my covering for our shame, for our sin, for our guilt, has been prepared before the foundation of the earth, before God created us, before you were formed in the womb, in your mother's womb. God knew you, and he had already an understanding of the fact that your human condition would cause you to sin, but he's made provision to purchase you back, to cover you with his glory, so that you can move from glory to glory. When God did all these things, they were recorded in history by Moses. These chapters at the beginning of the book of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 through 4, they're not random stories. They're foundational stories that are prophetic and messianic. Messianic in that they sense that they point to the Messiah. They point us to the answer. And as we begin to embrace these things, I've told you many times, Genesis is my favorite book. Now you're beginning to understand why. Because it's in these moments of encounter with God through the history of his love for humanity, as he creates us and puts us into context with him, as he brings us into that place where we can begin to understand, we can see the love that God has for humanity and how when Jesus When Jesus opened these things up to the disciples, all of history, everything from before creation to the moment of his crucifixion, to the day of his resurrection, to hours later on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples, he's bringing all of that into bear in that moment. And he shows them and he invites them in and their eyes were opened. I pray that as I've been sharing these things with you, as I've been sharing these realities, that 
the goodness of God would fill your heart and that you would recognize you have not been created randomly. You're not on this earth just because your parents had a baby. You're not on this earth just by error. Whether you were desired by your parents or you were in an accident, you were not an accident. You are in the plan of God, written in the books of history in heaven, designed for this day in this history moment on earth. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what struggles you're going through. It doesn't matter what persecution you're facing. All of that in this moment, God knows you're on earth here on July 25th, 2021, sitting in your home, listening to my voice through Zoom. He knows that he has prepared you for this moment to move you from glory to glory. So I urge you, devote yourself to the things that we are talking about. Devote yourself to the apostles' teachings. Devote yourself to breaking the bread, to prayer, to fellowship, and to worship. God bless you as you do that. Normally, on Sundays after the service, we invite you to join us for prayer. Today will be the last day for the balance of the summer. The prayer team is going to take a break until September. Uh, but if you need prayer, reach out to one of us. We'll put something on the website right now. The link is still live. Uh, actually, the link is no longer live. So I'm guessing that that's not going to be a possibility for you today. Uh, if you do need prayer, text one of us, text me or Rob right now on the chat. We'll make sure somebody is there to uh, meet you and to, to be able to do what you need to do. I'll put a separate link than uh, the link that we normally go to on the chat here. And you can copy that and paste it into your browser. And uh, we'll be able to accommodate that way. So the link is in the browser, and you'll see it in a moment. Aaron, I'll pass it back to you to close us off. 